Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Oops, never mind. Halford and Brupp here on Sportsnet 650, not Canucks Talk. In my defense, my co-host Israel Fair was showing me some hot breaking news uh, from the world of the NHL. Uh, let me do the read here, and then we'll get into the breaking news, because I goofed that pretty good. Anyways, Halford and Broth is brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today. Visit your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. Uh, all right, a lot to get into here. Canada has just wrapped up a 2-1 win over Ireland at the World Cup. A fantastic performance from Canada in the second half. We can get into this more um, throughout the course of the show. But as mentioned, Canada beats Ireland 2-1. Massive result taking the three points. They'll wrap up their group stage with a game against the host Australia, but now with four points through two games, puts them in a much, much stronger position to advance out of the group. Uh, and again, a really, really impressive performance, I thought, from Canada in the uh, in the second half of that game. Now, to the breaking news in the world of the NHL, uh, I will throw to my guy Israel Fair. Do you want to? Uh, do you want to give us the yes, news here? Yes, let's do it. So, uh, big contract news out of Carolina. Sebastian Ajo gets that eight-year deal, the nine seven five million dollar cap hit. Uh, we spent a bit of time talking about the Hurricanes yesterday uh, and the Tony D'Angelo contract yep. and how that was them getting a player on a bargain. Uh, and I believe you said it, that they were going to sign Ajo mm-hmm. and that they, they are going to pay elite money to a guy who is clearly an elite talent. And so eight years for their number one center, 9.75 for Sebastian Ajo. And it is impossible to go anywhere else in this market other than the classic, what does this mean for Elias Pettersson? <laughs> because... Aho was in a different, a bit of a different situation, right? He needed a new contract. Or do, no, this is an extension that's going to kick in the year after next, I believe. I'll have to double check that. But at any rate, you just look at potential comps for Elias Pettersson. And Aho doesn't have, like, he doesn't have a point production year on his resume like Elias Pettersson did. He is under this contract last season. For, yeah. For so he's under contract season. for next season. So actually a pretty similar position to Elias Pettersson. Uh, for Sebastian Ajo, a little bit older for Ajo, uh, has more service time, but not a completely uh, unfamiliar situation compared to Elias Pettersson. And Ajo doesn't have the same type of point production. I mean, look, he's had point-per-game years and around that, but he, he's never had a, a breakout 100-point season like Elias Pettersson did this past year. But you talk about two-way value and everything that he brings, age, role in the lineup, all of that. This is a really, really strong comparison for Elias Pettersson. Now, I look at that number, eight years at 9.75. If I'm the Vancouver Canucks, I feel really good about that. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to be able to get Elias Pettersson at exactly that number. There are other factors. Look, Carolina has built this really, really strong you know, winning culture, obviously with Rod Brindamore, with the system they have. You can understand why Sebastian Ajo would be not necessarily pushing for every last dollar he could get to stay in Carolina, but still, a comp is a comp. Eight years at 9.75, even if you put a little bit of a premium, whether it's because it's Canada and the tax situation or because the team hasn't been as successful, even if you put a little bit of a premium on that number for Elias Pettersson, with this as a starting point, 
it's a very, very good thing if you're hoping to see the Canucks be able to lock up Elias Pettersson at a reasonable number going forward. That's my instant reaction to the news uh, that Sebastian Ajo has signed this extension for uh, in Carolina. For sure. And uh, look, Pettersson has not been uh, <laughs> has not been shy. At least in the you know the smoke signals, mm-hmm. if you will, of what that next contract's going to look like that mm-hmm. he's expecting to get. We've heard paid. Matt Barzell as a comp, yep. right? Which is in, in the nines, but a little bit lower in the nines. So, yeah, as you said, expecting to get paid, Elias Patterson. Um, this one to me though does feel like it, it's again, it's not exactly one to one. No contract is ever one to one, but this is about as close as it gets. You know what I mean? Like in in, in a sense that. Now I feel like the blueprint has kind of been laid to see where at least we know the ballpark. You know, it's not going Elias Pettersson is not going to blow the number that Sebastian Ajo got out of the water. Right. It's going to be somewhere in the ballpark, even if it comes in a little higher than it. That's my guess. Anyways. Yeah. I mean, I could I could see it be I could see it be. I can see like 10.5. Yeah, a million higher. But it's not going to be like 3 million higher, 2 million higher. I no, I, I don't imagine so. I would put a cap on a baby a million higher than than Sebastian Ajo. We'll see. I could be proven wrong. The other question is, you know, we've heard that's the question about the number, but I don't think the number is necessarily going to be that's not why a deal hasn't been signed yet. You know what I mean? I, I eventually the Canucks are going to pay Elias Pettersson or they're going to try to pay him what it takes to keep him around. I guess the other question for me seeing this deal get announced now between Sebastian Ajo and the Carolina Hurricanes is now that there is a top-line center who has signed this type of deal, does it motivate the Canucks and Elias Pettersson to really get negotiating in earnest? We've heard from Pettersson's agent, you know, hey, we'll probably talk in the fall. And look, there's still some other contracts to be signed. I mean, I know Austin Matthews at the high end. He'll eventually sign a deal here. Uh, Trevor Zegras has an RFA in a bit of a different situation, but again, a, a very productive center. There are other deals out there, but I do wonder. Sometimes what we see is, okay, one guy signs a deal, and then the other guys who've been waiting for it, they come to the table. I'm not saying, okay, expect an Elias Pettersson contract in the next couple of weeks here, but I think it it makes it a little bit easier for all of the parties to come together and get to work on a on an extension. I mean, I think the Canucks would be thrilled by that, would they not? Oh, yeah, Absolutely. So uh, the the ball is very much in Patterson's court mm-hmm. at this point, and there has been very little indication that he's particularly. No, I don't think he's. I don't think he's in a rush <laughs> for the extension. I don't think he is in any rush. And he knows that he's that. got. You know, they're going to have to give him a contract mm-hmm. at, the, at the end of this year, uh, whether that's to just get him to that UFA. Uh, that'll be that'll be fascinating. It's definitely. You know, we spent a lot of time talking about. Bo Horvat's future, and mm-hmm. JT Miller's future. Uh, this is the theme of this season, I'm afraid. It definitely is. I would still be very surprised if this ends with a one-year qualifying deal for Elias Pettersson at the end of the season. Like, I know that's always a theoretical possibility for hockey players in this situation, for elite guys like Elias Pettersson especially, but it's just such a risk in a sport like hockey, and especially if you put a you know an eighty to ninety million dollar contract in front of Elias Pettersson, I think it's really really difficult to walk away from that and to say you know what we're going I'm going to take the one year at whatever it is seven million seven million plus and, and then see what I can do in free agency. I'm not saying it's impossible for it to happen. I think it's much more likely that 
you see a Pierre-Luc Dubois or a Matthew Kachuk situation, right? Where if he decides that he doesn't want to be here, he doesn't do the one-year qualifying offer and then free agency, he says, you may as well trade me now. Now, I'm not predicting that that's going to happen. I would still very much predict Pedersen gets to a uh, gets to a long-term contract here, but I, I, I just can't see it really lingering into next offseason. And whether it's at training camp or whether it's some point during the year, I do think we're going to see a resolution before we get to the discussion of, uh-oh, he's an RFA. Is he going to accept the qualifying offer? Like, if it gets to that point, oh boy. <laughs> would you say that Elias, is real trouble. Would you say Elias Pettersson's a better player than Sebastian Ajo? I would, yes. But yeah. I don't think he... I so don't his think contract it, realistically could be end up being higher than... Yeah, oh yeah, for like, sure. I, I get it's sort of a comparable, but like it's it, it stands to reason PD's contract could still be... Above that. I expect it to be. I, I would that. expect it to be above it, but I think mm-hmm. it sets it sets the baseline and yeah. kind of the ballpark. Sure. Right? It's going to be above it, but it can't be miles above it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And somebody texts in here, I think the Canucks tax is more than $1 million over that number, Jamie. I expect at least 11 by 8 for PD. That would be uh, uh, slightly over $1 million more than what uh, mm-hmm. Sebastian yeah. Ajo If is they could getting. somehow get P for the Ajo numbers, that would be oh, yeah. I don't absolutely think it's insane. I really but don't I think But I don't think 10.5 is out of the question. No. Oh, no. I, I was assuming it'd be somewhere around that. Yeah, like 10, between 10.5 and 11. Yeah. I don't think that's out of the question Not at, at all. all. And, I mean, I and he deserves it. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. I don't know if there's any problem, any problem whatsoever giving Elias Pettersson that kind of contract. No. God, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, value is, the value is there. It's just, I mean... The focus is on whether it's going to happen yeah. and, and when. Then, when it's going you know, to happen. We can have some fun in reading into why it hasn't happened yet and <laughs> try to pull the strands there uh, because there's a lot of, you know, body language reading or reading into comments mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. there. There's, there's not a ton of reporting into why that is, but it's still, it's still interesting. I mean, it was interesting. The day that he signed a three-year bridge versus a longer contract with oh, yeah. Quinn Hughes commits for six. Uh, this one from Marcus and Gibson says, uh, I'd like to see six by 11.5 for PD for a total money of 69. Nice. That's from Marcus and Gibson's. I'm not entirely sure that's how uh, NHL players negotiate their contracts. Yeah, Rob Gronkowski is not playing <laughs> for the Canucks. This text comes in. Elias Pettersson is significantly better than Ajo. I do. Th- he's better, but I don't think it's an unreasonable comparison. Like I would take Elias Pettersson over Sebastian Ajo, but I do think if you're looking at just the counting stats for Ajo, I don't think you're getting a full picture of his value. He's a really, really good two-way center, like a really good two-way center. And I do think in a situation where they maybe got to play with a little bit more offensive freedom than they do in Carolina, I think you would see more scoring out of Ajo. Now, having said that, he's cracked a point per game before in his career. It's not as mm-hmm. if he's he's anemic a offensively. Of times. Yeah, he's a very good offensive player. Again, I would take Elias Pettersson, but I think you're talking about like the seventh and the tenth best centers in the league, not like the seventh and the twentieth best centers in the right. league. You know what I mean? It's, it's a it's a narrow. I think it's a much more narrow gap than a lot of people in Vancouver uh, would think in first blush. At first blush, yeah. I mean, if you're going from 2018-19 through 21-22, he is basically point per game. Yeah, for those four seasons combined. Last year, a little bit down, but still scored 36 goals. And we're talking about Patterson having scored. 39 and 80 he scored 36 and 75 mm-hmm. uh Patterson with way more assists and you know 
we know that Patterson can be such a, a weapon on the power play mm-hmm. that he has that that skill at a level that you know maybe outside of the guys in Edmonton, the guys in Toronto and in Boston, uh, you know, but maybe that changes now a little bit with Bergeron <laughs> retired. Uh, they have you know a really high ceiling to put up points that way, and I mean Patterson's coming off a hundred point season, but you mm-hmm. do have to remember that these contracts, like he's not. Unless he gets to that UFA thing, and based on the text box Monday when we were talking about Shohei Otani, if Patterson's not signed by that point, people want to trade. Want to trade him? So we might not be having that conversation. You have to remember with the RFA setup, that yeah, it does. The counting stats matter a lot. Well, it's been discussed on this show before. Obviously, just all the conspiracy theories and just like, is this going to be like the show me season? Does PD want to see if this team's committed to winning and Mm -hmm. building it the right way? And does he think he can win here? And maybe that's why he stretches the the negotiation a little bit. Not to say that that'll, of course, happen. It's all purely speculation. But uh, the longer it progresses, the longer it goes without a contract, that's what you kind of got to think in your head, right? Is like, what's his thought process there? Well, and understand, I, I will say from Patterson's perspective, there isn't actually a rush to get it done no, not necessarily, yeah. right? Because he does have the one more year under contract mm-hmm. and then the RFA year after that. He has the ability to be a little bit patient. There, there, there's no deadline. You're not under the gun to say, okay, I have to get a deal done. I have to figure this out. You know, I will say, He's coming off a 100-point season. He's coming off the best year of his career. Typically, that pushes players towards, well, let's sign the contract now. Yeah, right? like, like what if you get injured? What if you regress slightly? Exactly. There's a lot of variables in play. Right now, Pedersen, yeah. theoretically, he's really, really good. Theoretically, he could be even better next year. You never know. And then all of a sudden, he's really in a position uh, to max out what he's able to do. But it, it's a complex situation. I think there's reasons that both sides might want to get a deal done sooner rather than later. There's reasons that Pedersen... Might want to wait. Um, Dalvir V texts in, these numbers you guys are speaking of have me beaming. I'd personally be more than happy paying PD for like $13 million over eight years. And I, I do think, and I've been thinking this for a while, that the number is ultimately going to be less painful for Elias Pettersson than it could be. Right? Like, if you get Elias Pettersson at eight years for $11 million, you're extraordinarily happy. Right? Like for a, a, no doubt about it, number one elite center in the NHL. That's really, really good. I think now what this, again, what this Aho deal does is for Elias Pedersen to get more than, say, 11 million or significantly more than 11 million, he would have to come out and have like a heart trophy level year this year, right? He would have to be Which like. Which isn't out of the question. It's not out of the question, but it would have to be like 115 points, excellent two way play, and a heart trophy finalist or a winner, right? I think he would have to do something like that to push kind of out of the stratosphere of the Sebastian Ajos of the world and into the Nathan McKinnon, Austin Matthews kind of conversation, right? It's not out of the question. I, you know, I wouldn't normally bet against Elias I mean, Pettersson. he exists somewhere in that Right now, he's, he's below the McDavid's, McKinnon's, Matthews, Dreisaitl's, yep. right? So he's not going to get that type of money. He's maybe slightly above a guy like Sebastian Ajo and the next, you know, Braden Point, the other guys you can go down the list. Barkov, probably a pretty good comp for him as well and what and what he's able to do. So I guess the question for Elias Pettersson would be, can he do enough this year to push himself from one group to the next? That's a tall order. I get betting on yourself, but that is a tall, tall Also, do order. I want to be talking about this all year? Oh, yeah. <laughs> because it's, it'll be a con- continuous point of discussion throughout the season the longer Every progresses. time he scores a goal. Yeah. Petey, Petey, I know we asked you this Price yesterday, but up. we're going to ask you again. 
Yeah, no, it's a yeah, it's 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 a yeah, situation. I I would expect that if he doesn't have a deal done by the opening of the season, it'll be where we'll we'll negotiate in the off season. You know what I mean? Like you, that, you typically see that with players where if you don't get it done, you say we're not going to talk about it. I don't want it to be a distraction, so we'll revisit it again down the road. But no, that won't stop people from asking. It about will it. be a distraction. <laughs> yes. This market distraction. Yeah. Come on. Who in Vancouver? Really? Yeah. Uh, Ella texts in, in what way is the Ajo deal not a comparable for Petey? I, I mean, I think there is, you know, it's different teams, it's different situations, different yeah, histories of winning, different market. Sure. Yeah, I think the team is the biggest one. It's a lot easier to, look, we were talking about this with Bergeron, right? He constantly locked in at a number way less than what he could have got on the open market because he had helped build this culture with the Bruins. And Sebastian Ajo has helped build a program and a system with the Carolina Hurricanes, where they are successful year after year after year, and they haven't gotten over the hump. I know the conference finals have been tough for them, but if you're Sebastian Ajo, you have every reason to be confident that the Carolina Hurricanes are going to keep putting a good team around you, right? And I don't know how much that's worth to a player. That's going to vary from player to player, how much they're willing to leave on the table. But if you're just looking to, if you were trying to make the argument why this doesn't have an impact on the Elias Pettersson discussion, I think that's where you'd start. The different team scenarios, and they are very, very different between the Canucks and the Hurricanes. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, like with Ajo, you look at it, it's actually not a huge raise year over year because he signed that offer sheet with Montreal. That is now that's this is the last year of that, which is, you know, an eight plus million dollar cap hit. And now he's making, you know, a million plus jump off that. Mm-hmm. Patterson will be a little bit more than that, especially if we're talking that we're expecting Patterson to come in above call, 10 million. Call it a million. Yeah. 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 Over over Ajo. Ten point five to eleven, that kind of that kind of framework is uh, is what I would expect. Uh, all right, so there it is. Eight years, 9.75 for Sebastian Ajo in Carolina. They lock up their star. It is significant for Carolina to be going that long with a player. And look, Sebastian Ajo is the is the type of player you do it for, but uh, they step up to the plate and play Sebastian Ajo, who uh, just turned 26. Today is his birthday, so happy birthday to Sebastian Ajo, getting the big pretty, money pretty deal. Pretty good day. They, they delayed and decided to announce it on his birthday. Uh, I suppose 650 650 is the Dunbar lumber text line. And it's kind of fitting that we're doing a little NHL contract talk here, because uh, as I mentioned, your, uh, your colleague at the athletic Dom Lucision released his, the follow-up to his 10 best contracts in the NHL piece, which dropped earlier this week. Today, he released the NHL's 10 worst contracts as of right now. And this isn't Worst contracts going into next year. This is considering all of the years left on the books at that cap hit, which are the least appetizing deals remaining. And I, I mean, I will say my instant reaction was, you know, who's not going to be on that list anymore? Oliver Ekman. Lynn. He would have been. He probably would have been. He probably would have been anymore. <laughs> they, they the numbers that, that we saw from Dom Lushizen's model on OEL last year were horrifying. <laughs> Like, worst player in the league Oof. kind of stuff. And, I mean, that's, uh, you know, there's always the debate between the numbers and the eye test. I think the numbers and the eye test agree <laughs> pretty pretty soundly on that one and what Oliver Ekman-Larsen's impact was. But uh, just to run through some of the interesting names on this list. So, number one, Seth Jones, which I don't think will come as a big surprise given uh, the, the, the number of years left and the money on that deal. Seth Jones, Colton Pareko, number two, Jonathan Huberdeau, 
uh, number three, which, again, not a big surprise after his year in Calgary. Tyler Sagan at four. Mark Edward Vlasic at five. Braden Shen, six. That one surprised me a little bit. Travis Sanheim at seven, which surprises me a little bit as well. Uh, Ryan Strom at eight. Darnell Nurse at nine. Uh, Nick Backstrom at ten, rounding out the list. And at the top of the list, the two names, Seth Jones and Colton Pareko. That is a fascinating kind of duo to look at as the worst contracts in the league. And again, you have to, you know, understanding how this works. It's about total money left on the deal or total cap it left on the deal. What value you can expect them to provide in that time. But we were talking a little bit about it yesterday, right? Where there's a transition or there looks like there might be a transition in the NHL where it's not enough just to be a big physical defenseman who can play 25 minutes a night. Teams are starting to shy away from paying those players. But you look at th- those two names, that's exactly what they are. They're in your mind's eye. You look at Seth Jones and Colton Pareko and you think, wow, this guy's a number one defenseman, right? That that physical profile, ability to skate, can stay on the ice all, all day, You know, has a little bit of puck skills. You think that guy should be a number one defenseman. They get paid. But when you look at the actual on-ice impact consistently for those players, it just doesn't add up. And I think it's such a it's such a telling sign that neither of those guys are elite offensive players, right? They're they're theoretically these big workhorse defensemen. If you're going to commit to a defenseman like that who doesn't, you know, who's not going to be an elite power play quarterback, not going to be an elite offensive producer, you better be 100% sure that they're they're not just theoretically a good defensive defenseman, that they actually are. Because otherwise you end up with a Seth Jones or a Colton Pareko on your books for a long time. For sure. And those are, I think, probably top the list in terms of players that GMs would be afraid to let go. Yeah. Right? Like, it's, How are we going to replace Darnell Nurse, like as Seth you mentioned, Jones. also yeah. on this list, and that is the, you know, the thing in Edmonton where – have didn't have very many good defensemen mm-hmm. for a long time. You get Darnell Nurse, who does bring a lot of quality to a team, and they bridged him twice, which is part of the reason that they were put in this position. I mean, that's you know, the takeaways from the worst contracts list are those player types, so yep. the defensemen that you pointed out, and then there are a number of contracts that are recently signed, you know, Jonathan Huberdeau, Mm -hmm. and that's a player who gets traded to a team and signs a long-term deal right away. Same with Seth Jones, actually. So that's, you know, a commitment is made to a player immediately off a trade. And then, you know, you Travis Sanheim, that's a recent contract. Ryan Strom, that's a recent contract. And then you've got some of the older players, you know, Vlasic, Backstrom, and there, who's the other older player here? Uh, Braden Shen, or Tyler Sagan, actually, more yeah. so than Braden Shen. Those are players that signed their contracts when they were in their primes. I mean, Shen to some degree as well, yeah. providing more value, and they, they just signed for, you know, two, three million. Sagan and Huberdo are kind of the classic, uh, the other classic archetype of a bad contract, which is signing a points producer who doesn't necessarily have a great two way game at the peak of their value to a deal that stretches into their thirties. You know what I mean? Like that's the one that can really come back to bite you. And I think probably a lot of Canucks fans perked up and thought, are you talking about JT Miller? (laughs) As I was laying that out. And that's the fear. That's the concern, right? That if JT Miller has a fall off, a la Jonathan Huberto, a la Tyler Sagan, you know, could he be end up on a list like this 
uh, in the future. To do that, he's going to have to not just maintain his point production, but really maintain his strong two-way play as well. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, get your thoughts in on the Sebastian Ajo deal, what it means for Elias Pettersson and the Vancouver Canucks. We will uh, switch tracks a little bit, talk a little NBA with Mo Dakil of uh, Bleacher Report and The Athletic coming up next. Some interesting things happening in the NBA. Jalen Brown signs a big extension, some trade situations to monitor. Uh, we'll talk about that, and we will find time at some point as well to break down Canada beating Ireland 2-1 at the Women's World Cup in Australia. Lots more coming up here on Halford & Bruff, Sportsnet 650. The People's Show, your home for Vancouver summer sports talk. Subscribe to the podcast now. Welcome back to Halford and Bruff here, Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Israel Fair, filling in for the guys. Halford and Bruff brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today. Visit your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. We are live from the Kintec studio, Kintec Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider. Supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. As a reminder, what we learned is coming up at 8.30. Still lots of time to get your submissions in. Hashtag WWL, what you learned in the last 24 hours of sports. And uh, we need more submissions. Don't don't make us think of something to talk about in the last segment. You do Come it. on, people. You do it for us and give us something to talk about. Uh, hit us up with your What We Learns 650-650. Uh, but right now, uh, joining us on the line to talk a little NBA hoops. Uh, he uh, covers the NBA for Bleacher Report and The Athletic. He is Mo DeKeel. Mo, thank you for doing this. How are you? I'm doing well. How about yourselves? Uh, we're doing very well, and uh, yeah, appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. So, big news in the NBA yesterday, Jalen Brown signing uh, the massive extension, richest in NBA history, with the Boston Celtics, and it always feels like we go through this cycle of just the nature of the cap going up and how the the max and the super max contracts work. You know, I remember when Mike Conley signed his big deal. I think it might have been the richest in NBA history at the time, and everyone loses their mind a little bit. Oh my goodness, how how could you give Mike Conley that much money? But then in a few years, it ends up looking all right. Is that kind of where we are with Jalen Brown? That there might be some sticker shock now, but it was ultimately what the what the Celtics had to do. I think so, but there's one other caveat that's a little bit different with this situation than the uh, than the Connolly one is the new CBA is going to be very punitive, and and it's going to be extremely difficult for teams when they have this this much money attached to guys, and if you're not winning, it's going to be very difficult. So let's look at it this way: they're paying Jalen Brown three hundred four million over the next five years. They're going to have to make an extension agreement with Jason Tatum next year. So eventually they're going to be having about over $100 million tied into two guys. And that makes it challenging to build the team out after that. And I think that's the stuff we're going to see a lot of teams going forward looking, in, you know, looking at that and trying to figure out how to navigate that stuff. And I think that's 
going to be where it gets really interesting for Boston with what happens with Jalen Brown down the road, you know, two, three years from now, if he even finishes the contract as a Celtic because of that new CBA might make it really difficult for them to hold on to him and Tatum. Yeah, I do think it's fascinating because, you know, as you mentioned Tatum, and there's no question, guys like Tatum in that stratosphere, they're going to make their Supermax deals. They're going to, you know, teams are going to do whatever it takes to to sign them. I am curious with a player kind of slightly down the ladder in the NBA like Jalen Brown, who really good player, all-star, but, you know, you would never think of him as being best player on a championship team or first option on a championship team or anything like that. As you mentioned, I'm curious to see if, look, he got his, but if teams are going to be wary at all of giving those caliber of players the same types of max and super max deals that that we've seen them routinely give out in the past. Yeah, it's just really hard. Teams are in an impossible situation just because we give these contracts to pretty much our second and third options yeah. on these uh, on, on these rosters and it's it's they're kind of overpriced you know, at that point, and it's not their fault. If anybody offers me that contract, I'm taking (laughs) it and I'm not scoring a point. Um, But I think it's more just along the lines of, you know, the, the market is a little bit out uh, sort of outpriced uh, in a way where guys like Tobias Harris make getting a max contract at one point, you know, I don't know if Bradley Beal is a max player and, and, and there's you have a lot of guys across the board like that, but the way it goes in the NBA, those guys all get paid. And, you know, when, one thing about Jalen Brown is he was the best Celtic in that in their finals run against the, the Warriors, you know, and it's, it's something that, look, this team was two games away from winning a championship. And I think that's something we got to kind of look at when we're talking about them. But the way the economics go in the NBA, your second option is always going to be a max guy and is always going to command a contract like this. If you're a really good team that has the, uh, the ability to contend for a championship, is generally going to be the case. And I think that's sort of what, you know, teams are sort of stuck in this situation. I don't know how they're ever going to get out of that. You mentioned the the new CBA, Mo. Do you imagine that because of how punitive it, it can be to have the wrong player under one of these max contracts or super max contracts that uh, while player movement has already been on the rise, mostly through player empowerment. And we'll, we'll talk about James Harden and Damian Lillard in a second, that this might even open the doors further to that player movement coming from the team spot where they, they don't feel like they can commit to a player of, you know, Bradley Beal's caliber, for example. Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to end up seeing a lot more trades. Just we're going to see more names move in trade situations. Like, let's just say, you know, hypothetical two years from now, Boston still hasn't won a championship. They have this overinflated uh, cap situation, and now they're over the second apron, which basically handcuffs them and means there's essentially pretty much nothing they can do but sign vet minimum guys. Well, the only way out of it is going to be trading either Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown in that scenario because they're not going to keep paying these massive tax, keep being hindered in terms of building a roster and not win a championship. You know, it's different if they win a championship, then you kind of go, okay, we can, we can ride with this. But at that point, it becomes very difficult for ownership to be able to justify having that roster. So I think we're going to start to see over the years, we'll see more and more player movement via trades and, and, and not almost not by like trade demands, but by teams mm. going, Man, we got to get out of this situation. We got to move one of these guys. 
is Phoenix kind of an early test case for that experiment? Because they're basically doing what you said, right? They've got three, three, you know, guys making a ton of money plus DeAndre Ayton. And then basically everyone else is, uh, is on the minimum salary. Are they kind of an early test case to see how viable that strategy is going to be in the new CBA? They are, but they're also dealing with, you know, two guys that are pretty much, you know, I mean, Kevin Durant, as awesome as he is, is a little bit older and, and, and probably past his prime prime. Uh, you know, and, and, and Bradley Beal, we'll, we'll see what it looks like over the next few years. But they are the test candidate. Like, they're the one team that just said immediately, said, forget it. We're just going to go all in this way. And they've done a good job. And I think they have a really pretty solid roster for what they've had, to, the, the resources they had available to them. But it'll be very interesting to see how it plays out. But I think it's even the younger teams. I think it's a team like Oklahoma City that's going to have a lot of issues. I think it's going to be teams like Memphis that are going to have issues because they have a ton of young guys that are all going to expect to be paid. Mm -hmm. And that's where the problems kind of sort of begin to manifest themselves. So maybe these guys, uh, the veterans that are on the trade bar, trade block, or, or at least want to move in Harden and Lillard, are the the last of this generation. But there's clearly still interest in those guys. You know, if Harden gets his way, he'll end up with the Clippers. If Lillard gets his way, he'll end up with the Heat, which would be, I guess, closer to the kind of trade or the kind of team building that we've gotten used to over the last ten or fifteen years. Do those moves? push those teams over the top or do you imagine that it's the same kind of problems that some of these teams have run into in the past no well I think you know for Miami I think if you get Damian Lillard I think they become one of the the inner circle contenders in the Eastern Conference I think they've they've lost a lot of guys and Max Struess you know Gabe Vincent leaving those guys were important pieces for them in for their finals run but you had if you had Damian Lillard which I think is going to happen at some point it's nobody else is even making offers at this point. So I think they will make a, a massive leap in terms of expectations. And we would expect them to be a championship team. The, the Clippers is just so difficult, man, even if they get James Harden. And I don't think they will. I think James is going to end up staying put at least at the, he's going to come into training camp as a sixer, but it just, it's so difficult to kind of predict the Clippers just because man, they're never healthy. We never can get these guys to play 40 games together. It's just not, you know, it's just not in the cards. There hasn't been in the cards for them since those, since Kawhi and Paul George got there. And I, I wonder if it'll work out that way for them. Yeah, as you said, Lillard probably almost certainly going to Miami. It does feel like there's a little bit more uncertainty with the James Harden situation. You know, I know the the word on Daryl Morey, the Sixers GM, has he has no has been he has no problem, you know, letting this get uncomfortable and letting it drag on. How do you see that one ultimately playing out? So it doesn't matter if Daryl Morey's okay with this getting uncomfortable and letting this drag on. It does matter if Joel Embiid does. Mm. And this is going to be the second time that they're going to ask Joel Embiid to put up with a situation where he has a player that clearly doesn't want to be there. And is, is you know, and at this point, who knows the way Harden might come in. You know, he might come out of camp out of shape. He might try to tank games. He might just say, forget it. I'm just going to ball out this year and try to get my massive contract as a free agent the next year. But if Joel Embiid's not willing to wait for this, then it becomes a massive problem for the Sixers. And it doesn't matter that Maury's willing to be uncomfortable because the biggest fear for the Sixers isn't James Harden. It's Joel Embiid walking into the office one day and saying, I want to be traded. We're not anywhere near contending. I haven't even gotten out of the second round. 
And I think that's something that really probably should keep Sixers fans up at night. And this idea of, you know, Maury can keep – Maury doesn't mind this being uncomfortable. That's fine, but you can't ask Joel Embiid to go through this again for the second time in three years. I think that's where you really start to run into problems. One of the names that came up in, in trade talks, uh, at least toward the end of the season, was Pascal Siakam. It seems that that's gone pretty quiet. And the Raptors, uh, you know, Fred Van Vliet goes, and they, they've kind of been in this middle ground since they won the title back in 2019. What, what's your read on the direction that the Raptors are, are trying to take? I don't think they know what direction they're trying to go. It seems like, you know, at the trade deadline, they inquired about everybody and, and took everybody's offers for OJ Anobi and Pascal Siakam. And then, you know, obviously ended up not making any moves. They lose Fred, lose Fred Van Vliet in free agency, which was expected. And now there are these rumors about them possibly trading for trading Siakam. Except they never actually pull the trigger on these trades. Like, just think about how many years we heard about DeMar DeRozan possibly being traded, and then it was like four years later he finally gets traded. And that was for Kawhi Leonard, which obviously made sense, and they won a championship and it worked out. But I think the, they don't really understand kind of what they're trying to do. They have a log jam, and they have three guys that are essentially the same guy, in OG Ananobi, Scotty Barnes, and Pascal Siakam. And I think they need to try to figure out how they want to move forward and go from there. But it just doesn't seem like, I'm not expecting a Pascal Siakam move because I just don't think the Raptors really actually want to make a move. I think they do a lot of talk and then always kind of pull out at the last second. Uh, Just before we let you go, Mo, I mean, always a lot of interest in LeBron James and the Lakers. They had an interesting offseason. I think a lot of people pretty high on what they've done. Are they legit title contenders going into next year in your eyes? I I don't know if they're legit title contenders. I think they're on the – possibly can be right there i think it's a i think there are other teams i think phoenix is better than them i even though they beat the warriors in the playoff series i think the warriors are going to have a bounce back year and they're going to be better than them i think they're kind of just on the outside of contender basis i'm not sure if they have just enough shooting yet and i think that's one of the things that's really going to hurt them and they also need another big man because we saw how Jokic really kind of dominated them in that conference finals. And I think that's, those are the things that they got to kind of start looking at going into the uh, regular season. Mo, appreciate the time and uh, getting us up to date on the NBA. Thanks for doing this. Oh, thank you guys for having me. Thanks Mo. That is Mo DeKeel covering the NBA for Bleacher Report and the athletic. And, you know, one of the things we touched on there with Mo that a lot of people are talking about after the Jalen Brown deal and even, you know, the Bradley Beal trade to the Suns is how the new CBA is going to affect things. And, you know, you brought up the word parity. And there was a really interesting piece uh, from Tim Bontemps at ESPN this week talking about these, whether or not we're in this new era of parity in the NBA. And one of the stats he mentioned was that uh, the NBA has five di- has had five different champions in the last five seasons. The Nuggets, the Warriors, the Bucks, the Lakers, and the Raptors. And I think the last time they had five straight different champs in the NBA was like in the 50s or the 60s. It just doesn't happen that often in the NBA. And it might not sound like that wild, right? You think, oh, every sport does that all the time. You know, the last time the NHL had five different champs in five straight years was 2008 to 2012. So it's been a decade plus since that's happened, even in the NHL. It's a big deal uh, for it to happen in the NBA. And even more interestingly, that comes after four straight seasons where you had the same finals matchup, Warriors-Cavs, for four straight years. You go right from that dominance of two teams to 
five seasons with five different champs. And I'm curious to to kind of pull our listeners on this because I think one of the things you hear from people who aren't on board with the NBA, who aren't NBA fans, especially in Canada when you're comparing it to the NHL, one of the things you hear a lot of is, well, there's no parity. There's no parity and that turns me off. Well, all of a sudden you're in this place where there's actually been a ton of parity in the NBA over the last five years. You could argue more so than the NHL. And they have this new CBA, which seems designed to make it difficult for teams to collect even two star players, let alone three or four star players like we've seen in this past. I'm curious to know how much it's changed, how people enjoy the league. I will say for me, it's interesting. I don't consider myself a big, like, I need parity guy. I think there's arguments for it. I think there's arguments against it. I've enjoyed seeing teams like the Nuggets and the Bucks make runs, but I also think back, like, I loved watching the Cavs and Warriors go at it. That was incredible. The 2016 finals, where LeBron comes back from down 3-1, that might be, like, the best series of basketball I've ever watched, or at least the one I've enjoyed the most. I, I think we we often get into this conversation where we assume that ultimate parity is should be the end goal for every league. I don't always think it's that simple in practice though. I, I agree. Um, and I'm, I'm very much on the side that I don't, I don't care about parity. Yeah. This is a capitalistic professional sports. I don't have time for people complaining about, uh, losing, uh, and like, I get it. You might think it's not fair and that some teams have more resources than other, but mm-hmm. that's, that's that's professional sports. That's the to me. That's the way that it works. And uh, I mean, I I, I read Tim Bontemps' article. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of interesting points were brought up. I also think that when you go through those five teams, you've got a Kawhi Leonard championship, yep. a guy who won a championship with San Antonio. You still have another LeBron championship, but just not with Cleveland. Mm-hmm. And you've got the Warriors. You still have the Warriors. Yeah. And then the other two championships are guys that you would imagine. And this is where the real wrinkle is the CBA. Because you would imagine that Giannis and Jokic should dominate the next decade. And sure, maybe someone like Embiid is in that discussion. And, you know, some some people, you know, Mo just mentioned the Oklahoma City Thunder. And they've been this team on yep. on the ascent with, with Shea Gil- Gilgis-Alexander. And people are excited about that team. But, I mean, if we are here 10 years from now and... Jokic and Giannis haven't won another title. You would be, it'd be, it'd be surprising. Yeah, I, I would. I would be floored. And in some ways, those titles, as much as they seemed different because they weren't LeBron, they weren't Steph, they weren't the Spurs, they also do fit with the history of the NBA. In that, you know, when Giannis won his title, you'd probably say he's the best player in the world. Jokic, I think, make a no very doubt. strong case he's the best player in the world right now. Right. So in some ways, it is still more of the same. It's just that those guys happen to be in non-traditional markets were not used to being powerhouses Mm -hmm. in the NBA. And also they didn't have like Jamal Murray's an incredible player. You know, Chris Middleton's a really, really good player, but they weren't super teams. They weren't assembled like that. So it felt uh, a little bit different. Marcus and Gibson's makes a good point. He says there's more parody lately because of all the player movement in the NBA. He says parody is overrated, but it is nice to have. And as you pointed out, like the parody that you can either, if you're attaching it to a player, it's kind of not parody. Because, like, LeBron James goes to eight straight finals, but split over two teams, mm-hmm. right? And then he wins a championship with the Lakers, and that's a third team that he's won a championship with. So, is that parody because it's three different teams? Or is that LeBron being on three different teams? Same things with Kawhi Leonard and the uh, going from the Spurs 
to the Raptors, it it's almost something that can create like the illusion of parody, but it's still so attached to individual players in the uh, in the NBA. Well, the point that you made on Milwaukee and Denver not being traditional powerhouses yeah. is part of the reason that I think the theory pops, at least on the surface. Mm. It's not like, oh, it's it's the Lakers again, even yeah. though they're in there. They went to a new team, and or yeah, the Celtics won because they went and traded for Giannis or yeah. something, right? Like, yeah, that would feel very traditional NBA. But, so, look, I mean, if there are going to be more trades because contracts are getting shorter, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you, we're not seeing those long-term deals in the NBA anymore. Um, there's going to be... I don't know if... Maybe parity is not the right word, but it's just there's going to be more change yeah. really like that's what we're looking at if you're not going to keep if you're if teams are not going to be incentivized to keep their second or third best players because they're going to have to pay them too much then yeah. there's just going to be change but nothing will nothing will topple the number 1 player the best player no. in the world sort of thing and in a way i mean i guess it almost you almost need a different word for it because i think traditionally we think of parity as there's not going to be that many really good teams. There's not going to be that many really bad teams. And I don't think we're going to see that in the NBA. There's still going to be really, really good teams. It might just fluctuate more than it has in the past because there is. it's going to be harder to lock in like a big three for four or five years at a time. Colin and Tawasin says, I prefer seeing a couple of power teams go at it in the NBA. The NBA's best years were the Lakers-Celtics rivalry, the 90s Bulls, and the LeBron-Warriors rivalry, the only exception being the Raptors title run that's from Colin into Wasson. And I think that's ultimately where I land too. the, the, especially when, you know, he mentions the Lakers Celtics and then the LeBron warriors, especially when there's two teams that can push each other and that contest each other. And look, the nineties bulls and seeing Michael Jordan win, uh, you know, six championships, they didn't necessarily have a, a clear rival at that time there were a lot of good teams that they defeated but there wasn't one team you look at and say they were constantly being pushed to the limit by that team I think that's ultimately I agree like that's that's the most fun for me is watching two great teams go at it and it's harder to get that when you have quote-unquote parity and I do think you know it's one thing look some people are going to prefer more parity some people aren't the one thing that's clear to me is the leagues use the demand for parity as kind of a cudgel against athletes, right? Like, oh, we need parity to be a successful league. No, you don't. You're you're a big English Premier League mm-hmm. fan. Like, could you have less parity <laughs> traditionally <laughs> than the English Premier League has had? And yet, Monster most sport. successful most successful sports league in the world, probably at this point. I look at college football in the states, second most popular sports product after the NFL. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Zero parity. It's guess what? Alabama, Georgia, or Ohio State is going to win. You know that, or Clemson is going to win at the beginning of the year. Zero parity. I think you can prefer it. That's fine. But the idea that it's a prerequisite for a league to have success, for a league to be a big deal, I just don't think it holds up to any scrutiny. I also think that not only do leagues use it for players, but they, I think they kind of use it to convince fans that their teams are in it look at yes look at the added wild card in baseball or the the new play-in in basketball where it's this yeah like those those games are fun for fans and i i'm i'm all for expanding that out a little bit and having some more dramatic games but when it comes to the end of the season we're not going to be entirely surprised as to who's playing for the final no and even in the NHL, and not to tread too much on uh, Drance's not anything can't happen take here, but like <laughs> typically, 
Is that what he thinks? Yeah. Have you heard that? Have, have you talked to him about this before? It's come up once or twice. Even in the NHL, you expect to see a truly elite team lift the Stanley Cup. And, you know, people can point to the Blues and, and, and the Kings, and maybe you can find more exceptions in the NHL than other sports, but it's still relatively rare that a truly out-of-nowhere team ends up winning the Stanley Cup. As you say, you kind of know. You know, even if there's, like, this false parody and teams can sneak in and win a round or two, you have a general sense of who the really, really good teams are. Uh, this person texted in, early on it was the Pistons that pushed the Bulls. That's a fair point. Bulls had to get get past the Pistons uh, early, but then they just kept on winning for a long mm-hmm. time, for a long time after that. 650-650 uh, is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Still time to get your What We Learned submissions in. Hashtag WWL, what you learned over the last 24 hours in sports. Uh, looking forward to talking to our next guest. She is Katie Caller, head coach of the Whitecaps FC Girls Elite Academy. Uh, so obviously playing a big role in women's soccer in this city, in this province, also in this country. Uh, we'll get her thoughts on what Canada has done so far in the Women's World Cup, including beating Ireland 2-1 today. And also just uh, some thoughts about the development process on the women's side in this country. That's coming up next here. Halfman and Bruff, Sportsnet 650.